0: Amen. I hope that's your prayer as you're here today, gathered, ready to hear the words of the Lord from Acts chapter 1. This is His Word. And as we listen to His Word, as we consider His Word together, our prayer is that He would use it in our hearts to grow us and change us and make us into the image of Christ and build His church and glorify His name on the earth. And so as we come to this text. We think about what it means to do successful life, to do successful ministry. This is such a, a popular word and idea in our culture today, to be successful, to be productive, right? You want your life to be worth it, to have made a difference, have had some value, to have changed the world, so to speak. And in Acts chapter 1, we encounter the disciples in an interesting place where they sort of have two paths before them. They could take what our human nature often thinks of as successful, which is like, all right, let's do stuff, right? Let's get to work. Or they could take the path that the Lord has instructed them to take, which is, in this case, to wait and They make use of their time by praying, and we think, well, wait a second, they're not getting a whole lot done if they're just praying. I mean, you know, can they really check things off their to-do list if all they're doing is talking with the Lord and waiting for the next thing to happen? This This isn't real exciting stuff here right? I mean, where are the big events? W- why are they planning, you know, where they're going to plant their churches, right? I mean, we've got, last week, we're coming off Jesus' instructions, right? Go and be witnesses to the end of the earth. I mean, where's the planning here? We, you know, we got to go to this place and this place and this place, and we're going to use this tract, and we're going to go with this method. We're going to start some Bible studies, and you know, we're going to lay all this out, and guys, come on. We see success and productivity so much so often in terms of tasks and accomplishment and things we've done. The disciples here set the right tone. They wait, just like Jesus told them to wait. And then they sort of consider what He's told them to do in the past. He actually didn't tell them to pray. You just see that they're kind of leaning on what they learned from their Saviour. And so they talk to the Lord in one accord. They're unified around this. And then they they lean on the Scriptures. They go back to the Old Testament, the words from the Spirit through David. And they lean on that instruction to think through, okay, what kinds of things can we be doing here? What would be helpful? What would the Lord have us to do? And this is how God gives them success through their complete dependence On God. Jesus has left. The men in white clothing have prodded them to get to work. Why are you staring up into heaven? This Jesus is coming again. Get to work, so to speak. And so they go back to Jerusalem. We read about that in verses 12 and following. They travel, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, that's where the ascension had taken place which is uh, not far from Jerusalem. It's about a half mile to the east, maybe two-thirds of a mile. And uh, they travel back to where they were staying, and it's time to get to work. Now, you can imagine, try to place yourself in the, the maybe sandals of the disciples here. Jesus is gone, and so there's kind of just this, like, sense of, okay, here we go, right? All of their existence so far had really been following Jesus as disciples. I mean, that's just what they did. Okay, Master, Lord, what do we, where do we go next? What do we do next? What do you have for us? And now he's ascended to heaven. It's like, okay, well, we've we got to go back to Jerusalem. He told us that much. And, but now what? I mean, this is a big shift for these guys to begin to consider how they're going to take the next steps forward. And in this waiting There's so many potential ways that they could have responded. Sometimes we find the most trouble in the waiting, in leaning on the Lord for direction in those times of waiting. When we wonder, what is the right next step? What are we to do? How can I be successful in what the Lord has called me to do? What we're going to see in this text today is that success in our mission, a life lived with productivity, is actually just Complete dependence on our sovereign God. Whether that's through prayer, whether that's through following the instructions of His Word, whether that's just submitting and obeying what He's told us to do. Success is not about our skills. It's not about our ability to plan and prepare. It's not about our strength. It's not about our creativity. It's about... Following the Lord Jesus Christ, leaning on his strength, seeking him in prayer, studying his word. These things are the ways we depend completely on God. Now, as we watch the disciples live through this, we see first that they align themselves with God through prayer. And this is an important lesson for us. It really begins here. We want to get on board with what God is doing. We want to be successful in ministry. It's got to start with prayer where we bow before the sovereign God and align ourselves with what God is doing. Notice how this takes place in verses 12 through 14. They've traveled back to Jerusalem. In verse 12, Luke points out that it's a Sabbath day's journey. That's a common way of referring to a distance because the Pharisees had come up with this system to avoid working on the Sabbath. They had actually metered out how far you could travel before it would be considered work. And so they took the average distance of small villages the diameter of that village, and they said, okay, so the diameter of an average small village, that's going to be the maximum. So the idea was you could, you know, walk a little distance, do a few things without working on the Sabbath. So again, this was some Pharisaical tradition, but it became known as a measurement of distance, and it's about, well, about 3,000 feet in our terms today, somewhere between a half mile and two-thirds of a mile, and uh, that's about the distance away that the uh, Mount Mount. Olivet was. Uh, Zechariah 14.4 also confirms in prophecy that that's the same place that Jesus will return in his second coming, just like the angels had told uh, the disciples here. And so they travel back to Jerusalem. It's likely they return to the very same upper room where they had had the last supper with the Lord Jesus and where he had promised to send his spirit. We don't know that for sure. But it's only been 43 days since that gathering, where Jesus washed their feet and gave them the promise of the Spirit. And they haven't been in Jerusalem the whole time, but it's at least a familiar place. they had been there before, they could all fit in that room, they knew it, and so it's pretty likely... That They went back to that same place. But I just think it's interesting to think about, that as they wait for the coming of the Spirit, they're doing so in the very room where Jesus promised the Spirit would come, as we read in John 14, for instance. And so there they are gathered in this room. And in verse 13, John lists them all off. There's intentional focus on the 12, the disciples that Jesus had chosen. Now we know that those aren't all the followers that Jesus had, and certainly others were called disciples, and there will be others in the New Testament that are called apostles, but this passage has specific focus on the 12, now 11. Luke lists them all here in verse 13. This list is consistent with the other lists, although some, uh, some gospel writers name Judas as Thaddeus maybe seeking to avoid confusion with the Judas who betrayed Jesus. He's the last one listed there in verse 13. And so there are 11 names listed. These are the 11 left of the ones that Jesus had chosen. But as verse 14 points out, they're not the only ones in the room. There are some other followers who have gathered there well. But the key in verse 14 is that they're continuing in prayer with one accord. Prayer and supplication. The the, the wording of this makes it clear that this is something that is ongoing. They're continually praying. This is just what they're doing as they're gathered in this room. They're praying. Sure, there would have been some pauses, there would have been some breaks to eat, but like prayer was the basic task. Here's what we're doing. And it says that they did so with one accord. It means that they were of one mind together. They were unified in their prayers to God. And we don't know exactly what it is that they're asking the Lord for. Maybe their minds went back to Jesus' promise, which is written for us in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Where Jesus tells them this, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so maybe they're thinking, well, Jesus told us to wait until the sending of the Holy Spirit, so let's go back. And Jesus told us, if we pray, if we ask, our good Father will send the Holy Spirit. So again, remembering Jesus' words. I mean, Again, we don't know if they remember that passage exactly, but it very well could be. They're thinking back. We know prayer is the right thing to do. Certainly, they've been influenced by Jesus' life. How many times did Jesus step away from the crowds or step away even from His disciples to talk to His Father? They've learned from Him. They know this is the right next step. They talk to the Lord in prayer. What's significant here is that they weren't doing nothing in the waiting. In fact, the argument could be made that they were doing maybe the best thing. They were praying. And it was through that prayer that God brought unity to them. They were of one mind. They were of one accord, completely joined about seeking the Lord and His Holy Spirit and what God would do through them. They were asking for what God had promised Expressing their dependence upon God. Success in our mission is aligning ourselves with God, expressing our dependence upon Him, talking to Him in prayer, asking Him for help. It's often through prayer that God unifies the church and fulfills its mission for His glory. Praying is a difficult thing, isn't it? It's not that it's complicated. But it can be hard to do when we feel like there's so much weighing on our shoulders. But that's just the point, isn't it? That when we pray, we acknowledge that these things are not on my shoulders, but they're on the Lord's shoulders, and that He will help me do these things as He desires, as He sees fit. But I think in our culture of productivity, prayer has become especially difficult for us. We have worked ourselves out of the habit of praying and into the worship of productivity and busyness. Now, think about this in terms of, well, let's say this just happened to 11 of us gathered after Jesus' departure. I can tell you pretty clearly how I would have responded. Okay, guys. Guys. He's given us some instructions. We know we're going to be witnesses. We just need His Spirit, so it's time to start doing some planning. Peter, James, John, I want you guys to take the northwest quadrant of Jerusalem. You're going to start there. Philip, Andrew, you guys take the northeast. The rest of you, divide amongst yourselves the southwest and the southeast. If we divide into four quadrants. We should be able to reach everybody more quickly. I think this is going to work. Maybe we would have begun practicing our presentation of the gospel. Right? Okay, do we start with the birth of Jesus or the baptism of John? Well, it's a good question. Alright, well I'm gonna start with we'll start with the birth of Jesus. Good, good plan. Alright, what about you? How are you gonna start? Alright, practice, give it to us here. Let's see if you convert anybody. Good. You want a little quickly across the gospel section, slow down there, make sure you emphasize the cross, you know? And so we're planning, we're preparing, we're discussing. This, this is the way I would have responded. I mean, I can guarantee it. And then, maybe right before we head out to do the work, oh, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help before we go out. This is the way we've developed the habit of handling life, isn't it? There's an issue, there's a problem, okay, let's think, let's work, let's prepare. Now, I'm not saying we we stop doing those things, but to recognize that our dependence is completely upon God. And the first and most important thing we can do is to fall before His throne and to seek His help, to align ourselves with Him and what He wants and to depend completely on His work. Because that's the truth of our existence, What eternal good can we do of our own strength? Whose heart can you change by your power? Can you convert a human soul? Can you multiply God's church across the globe? These are tasks beyond our ability. Only God can do these things. And so we must depend on Him. I love how they're also praying together, and it has been a source of great unity. So it's not these followers of Christ kind of going out and doing their own thing. Well, you try that method, you try this method, we'll see who's most successful, maybe learn from each other. No, no, no. They have aligned themselves with God. They've become one accord, and that doesn't mean they turned into a mid-sized Honda sedan. No, it means that they've been unified in worshiping God aligning themselves with his will they're praying for his direction prayer is one of our crucial values as a church that we would be dependent upon god through prayer and so i encourage you to participate in prayer in the life of the church not Only on your own, that's important. But praying together, one of the ways God unifies His church is through praying together. So pray along with whoever's praying in the worship service. Attend a growth group where you can share and pray with others. Come on Wednesday nights where in our classes we take time to pray together. If you feel disconnected from the church distant from others, I wonder, when was the last time you prayed with your brothers and sisters in Christ here at the church? Part of the way God connects us and unifies us is as we bow before His throne and align ourselves with Him. That's where true unity comes. And so we We bow before Him and we ask for His help. We submit to His will. And this is what success is. Not the number of tasks we've accomplished, not the number of great ideas that we have, not the number of events we've put on, but bowing before the throne of the sovereign God who alone accomplishes the work of the church through us. And so we pray. Prayer is productive, and we need to begin to retrain our minds to think that way. So there they are, maybe in the same room where Jesus washed their feet and shared the Last Supper with them and promised the coming of the Spirit. And then Peter stands up, and he begins to speak to his brothers and sisters. Now, having gone through the Gospel of John and uh, learning a little bit about Peter and his personality and the other's disciples, we might cringe a little bit once Peter stands up. It's like, oh boy, what's Peter going to say? It's always kind of fun to watch Peter's personality through the Gospels. But here, he nails it. I, I think of the 40 days after the resurrection as Christ taught them and explained to them how things are going to work and what's going to happen with the kingdom and how they will be witnesses in this time of waiting for the kingdom. I think... Peter began to finally get it. And you can tell here that he's learned from the Lord Jesus. I mean, notice, as he stands up and speaks, where does he turn first? This is not just some Peter idea. He says to them first in verse 15, or excuse me, 16, men and brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Jesus turns to the Word. He refers to the Old Testament. He refers to the Psalms specifically. And notice his high view of Scripture. It's the words of the Holy Spirit through David. Clearly, Peter has been with Jesus, the Word made flesh. And Peter believes that David's words are the words of the Holy Spirit through David, prophesying what would happen in days to come. And certainly many of the Psalms that David writes, he's writing about the Messiah and the Son of David and what things would be like And so Peter begins uh, reminding them of the Word. The first thing he reminds them of, you notice in verse 16, is that we really shouldn't be surprised that Judas betrayed. In fact, that was predicted in the Psalms. Jesus even told them in the upper room, maybe the same room, that the Psalms predicted that he would be betrayed. with The one with whom he shared bread. Remember him saying that to them? This isn't a surprise to God. One of these chosen twelve would betray Jesus. And so Peter's reminding them hey, we can trust God's plan. We can trust God's word. Yes, Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, he says in verse 16. Verse 17, yes, he was numbered with us and had a part in this ministry. Now, in verses 18 and 19, our author Luke takes a little aside. We can tell because at the end of verse 19, he references the name of the field in Aramaic and calls it their own language. And You may remember Luke was probably a Gentile, so Aramaic wasn't the language that he spoke. He learned it, knew it but it wasn't his first language neither was Theophilus the one to whom Luke was writing and so these verses are a little aside to explain to Theophilus exactly what happened with Judas right Judas is mentioned and Luke's like ooh i need to make sure Theophilus understands what happened with Judas and so we have Luke's account of Judas's betrayal in verses 18 and 19 it's slightly different than the way Matthew describes it, but as we put the two of them together, we understand exactly what happened. Luke describes that Judas had purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. Now, probably what happened there was he began to make this purchase of a field. Matthew points out that Judas went through a time of regret, he actually returned the money. To the chief priests, and the chief priests finished the purchase of that land. So they used the money to do the same thing uh, Judas had likely intended to do with it, and so they purchased this field with Judas's money. Judas then, as we're told in Matthew, hanged himself, and Luke tells us the rest of the story of that hanging. That at some point, after hanging himself, Judas's body fell, and. Burst open. This is a lovely verse. I thought about making verse 18 our theme verse for today. Decided against it. You can tell Luke was a physician, right? He's interested in how all this played out. This is like Luke the physician's autopsy of Judas here. And sure enough, uh, there is a field southeast of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure whether it's this field that Judas purchased or that the chief priest purchased with Judas's money. But it's southeast of Jerusalem there, and there is a cliff where indeed if Judas had hung himself there, he could have fallen uh, to his demise. So Luke points these things out. And it became known across all of Jerusalem, word had spread, which is just an interesting side note to the truth of Scripture, even as we look at it Today. The book of Acts was written and distributed within the time period that these eyewitnesses were still alive. And so when we have little details like this about the field of blood and the purchasing of it and the death of Judas and all of this, it really could not have been accepted widely as the true word of God unless it indeed exactly matched what the eyewitnesses had seen. Word had spread across all of Jerusalem and it agreed with what Luke Had said here, right? So it's just a fun reminder that the word is indeed true. It's right, it's accurate, which dovetails as well with what Peter has just said. It's the words of the Holy Spirit through the prophet David. Now, back to David's speech, or excuse me, Peter's speech in verse 20 after Luke's aside. He references the book of Psalms and he quotes two different Psalms here. The first one is Psalm 69. It says, Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Now, Psalm 69 is quoted frequently as a messianic psalm. Uh, It's in John 2 17, it's also in Romans 15 3. And maybe the most recognizable one, it's in uh, Luke as well near the crucifixion. And there in Luke is the prediction that Jesus would be given vinegar to drink while up on the cross, right? And so that was predicted in Psalm 69. Well, this portion of Psalm 69 is a portion of the psalm describing what would happen to the one who betrayed the Messiah. And that no one would live in his dwelling place, that it would be desolate. And so Luke is referring to the field, which indeed became a cemetery. It was forbidden for anybody to live on those grounds because it became a burial place. And so Peter's saying, look, this was all prophesied. This is coming true exactly as the Lord predicted by His Spirit through David back in the Psalms. The second quotation is from Psalm 109. And this psalm is... Uh, Not quoted anywhere else in the New Testament as a messianic psalm. It's a description of David facing his own enemies, and likely specifically Ahithophel. Do you remember studying Ahithophel in uh, the Psalms? So Ahithophel was a man who was a close counselor to David... But when Absalom rebelled against David and stole the kingdom, Ahithophel betrayed David and went over and served Absalom. And so there was this close betrayal. And in Psalm 109, David is lamenting this betrayal and calling God to judge his betrayer. And it parallels in so many ways with what happened to Jesus with Judas, one who was close, one of the twelve that he had chosen, betrays him and serves the enemy. And in that passage, David says he wants somebody else to take the office that Ahithophel, as counselor, had served for David. And so Peter applies that here to Jesus. Look, Judas had an office. He left it. He betrayed. We need to fill that office. Now, there are a couple other reasons, I think, That Peter wanted to do that. We know that the disciples had a specific role. The twelve were given a role in the kingdom. In fact, God had promised to them that they would be participating in ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. That each of the apostles would be over one of the tribes. Twelve apostles, twelve tribes. And Jesus had made this teaching clear to them. We'll look at it a little later in the sermon. And so they had that role to fill in the kingdom. And so again, Peter is leaning on the words of Christ to do what they had been called to do. So in verse 21, Peter proposes a plan. Let's... Look at the men who have been with Jesus, who have followed Jesus, and he kind of lists a time period in order to qualify as one of the twelve. They've accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John to the day he was taken up. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. To fulfill that calling of apostle, the twelve, to, until the kingdom comes, be witnesses to Christ. So Peter is following the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ, following the words of Christ and the words of the Psalms in seeking to do the next thing. What's key for us here is Peter's sensitivity to the Word of God. First, to remember Christ's instructions that there would be 12 apostles to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And then also to remember the Messianic Psalms and to apply those to the Lord Jesus Christ and to what happened with Judas. And that indeed it would be a good idea to fill the office. The Word guided their actions While they waited, they were sure to do what the Word had instructed them to do. And so we see our second truth today. As we think about living success as dependence upon God, it's that we follow the instructions of His Word. The key is not our creative ideas. It's not our new methods. It's not our creativity or original plans. But the key is, what did He tell us to do? What does the Word say? How do we follow his instructions? I remember traveling to New York City one time with a group of college students. We were traveling around the country, serving at camps uh, over one summer, and uh, we had the opportunity uh, on one of our days off uh, to visit New York City. And so we did some exploring and uh, sightseeing and so forth, and we used the subway system to get around the city. Uh, which was a, a fun adventure as well. And uh, so we were navigating away around the city. We had a plan. We were going to visit this place, and we were going to go to the Statue of Liberty, and then we were going to go to another place. And we had all these things we wanted to see as we traveled around the city. Now, this is long enough ago. This is a little special caveat here. This is long enough ago that uh, there was only one or two of us that had cell phones. And even those who had cell phones didn't have great reception especially down in the subway. So, you know, things have changed. Things have developed since then. Uh, But we didn't have a great means of communicating with one another. And so wisely, our group leader thought, okay, well, here's the plan. We're going to go to these places. And if we get split up, you know, this is what we'll do. So we worked really hard, getting on and off the subways. If you've ever experienced that, these crowded places, you know, where you get to stick your face in other people's armpits as their hands are up on the rails above, and so on and so forth, just super pleasant, right? So we're doing all this, uh, all these kids from Iowa, and so we're getting around the city. We're we're doing great. Well, then we got to Times Square, and the uh, the various platforms uh, at the subway around Times Square were all extremely crowded that day. And we hadn't quite experienced that much crowding yet. And so the subway car pulled up, the train pulled up, and the doors opened, and there was a mad rush to get in the train. And, you know, it was kind of pushing and shoving. And sure enough, three of us got on the subway, and three of us did not. And kind of watched with our jaws open as our teammates, you know, zipped off down the line. Okay, now what do we do? So the three of us that were left on the platform, were kind of looking at each other going like, uh, okay, well, how do we get reconnected here? You know? And so first thing we tried was, well, let's, let's call them. One of them has a cell phone. One of us has a cell phone. Let's try calling. You know? no, no bars, no reception. Well, we could, we could pop up to Times Square and see if we would get reception up there. So we tried that. The other person didn't have reception. Nothing, no, no phone calls could go through. Oh boy, what do we do? Well, are are, are they gonna come back to us or or, are they gonna wait for us at the next stop? Do we need to go to them? Or, you know, what if we do that, we might end up switching places and then we're here and they're here. Maybe we should just follow the instructions we laid out at the beginning. Finally, the thought occurred to us. What was our next destination? Ah, we were gonna go here next. So let's go there, stick to the plan and I bet we'll all end up at the same place. So we got on the train Went to the right stop, got out, got to our destination, and pff, sure enough, there they were. Oh, and as we talked with the other half of our team, and they had tried the same scenarios. like, well, they tried calling first, and so that didn't work. And then they thought, through, well, should we go back? But then maybe they'll go back. And then finally, they concluded too, no, let's stick to the plan, and we'll all end up in the same place. And sure enough, we did. And it was great. We didn't get separated again. I had a great time in New York City, and I survived. There you go. End of the story. The point is, what was helpful to us in that moment of separation, when we lost direction, we didn't know where to go, we didn't know what to do, it was helpful to lean back on the instructions, to remember the plan that we had talked about together. And this is why it's so important for us to keep leaning on the Word of God. The building of His church, the accomplishment of His mission on the earth is His work, And yes, he wants to use us in that process, but it's not dependent on our originality or our creativity or our just huge intellects and the way we can figure this out. No, he's laid it out with a plan in his word. We have instructions. It's not that we can't make plans. It's not that we can't have ideas and try things. But first and foremost... To always come back to the Word and do what He's told us to do. We get so excited about our plans and goals that often we fail to heed the Word of God. We get so busy doing things for God that we actually stop spending time with Him in His Word. Which of us hasn't struggled to be faithful in our devotions because our lives are so busy? Think about that for a moment. When, when loving God is the most important thing He's told us to do. Which of us doesn't struggle to, to get distracted by our goals, even good ones? And then we become harsh and impatient with others slow us down or get in our way. Even though we know the second greatest command is to love others. Who's got priority here? My plans or God's plans, right? We get so busy doing good things that we don't take time to care for our neighbors, to develop relationship with them so that we can share the gospel, even though we know Jesus wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We get so enamored with the spectacular that we stop doing the simple commands of Christ, what His Word tells us to do. In the life of our church, there's the potential we could get so focused on a building plan, the excitement of what God is doing to build His church, that we stop asking God for direction. We get so focused on missions work that we stop looking for open doors with our contacts here. We want to do something we can talk about, something cool, something big, And while we look for that spectacular thing we can do for Christ, we neglect to love our spouse sacrificially like Jesus told us to. We neglect to disciple our children faithfully as God calls us to do. We can't brag about those things. They're not as cool. They're not as popular. They're not as exciting. And yet they are exactly what Christ has commanded us to do. So if we want to be successful, if we want to be faithful, we need to stop getting distracted with what can sometimes even be good goals and ideas, but to start first and foremost with prayer and then the Word. What has He told me to do? We need to retrain our brains to see that success is obedience to the Word, not my goals, not my exciting things that I want to do for Christ, but faithfulness to what He's told me to do. Success is completely dependent upon God and His instructions. The Word is what we need, not our ideas. And so share the Word. That's what people need. As we seek to live these successful lives, completely dependent upon God, we not only pray and align ourselves with God, we also follow the instructions of His Word. And the third thing we're going to see today is that we submit ourselves to His leading. So so Peter and the other disciples have kind of presented this plan, and and it's based, I think, on the Word of God, on Scripture, and what God has led them to do through His instructions, And yet, even with that, they submit their plan to God here in verses 23 and following. Now, verse 23 picks up on Peter's instructions. They've just determined that the person they choose should have been with Jesus for a certain amount of time and heard what he taught and saw, visibly saw him resurrected from the grave. And so these are the kind of the qualifications for one of the twelve, which are kind of a lot of qualifications. In fact, I think they really can narrow it down to only two men in verse 23. And though there are four names listed in verse 23, one guy has three of those names. <laughs> Joseph called Barsabbas, who is surnamed Justice. So I, I don't know why we get all three names. Maybe there are a lot of guys with these names in the early church there, and so they wanted to make sure they knew which one it was. And the other guy's just Matthias. So there you go, Matthias. These are the two men that they've chosen. But even as they select just these two, as they seek to decide which one it would be to fill the office of one of the twelve, they pray. And I love this prayer in verse 24. They pray together and they say, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Now, we'll go on in verse 25, but let's just pause with that part of the prayer so far. First, they, they praise God for His sovereign knowledge of all things. They admit, okay, Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, and Matthias have been here for God's work. They've seen what the Lord Jesus Christ did. They witnessed His resurrection. So in that sense, they qualify, but... We don't know their hearts, Lord. You know their hearts. They're praising God for what God can do that they can't do. So they just kind of submit this plan to God. And they ask God at the end of verse 24, Show us what you want. Who have you chosen, Father? We're seeking to please you. We want to honor you. You show us what you have chosen. Verse 25 explains the the rest of the reasoning for this request. This person will take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell that he might go to his own place. Judas had made his choice. He had diverted from what Christ had done to go his own way. And so he fell, both spiritually and literally, to his end. As he turned from Christ and rebelled from the office to which he had been called. Luke here calls it a ministry and apostleship. It's a service. And that sense of apostleship, it's a difficult one to say, that sense of apostleship goes back to what Jesus had instructed them that they would do. Now, I referenced this already in the sermon. But this goes back to Jesus' instruction to them as he taught them about what they would do in the kingdom. And in that instruction, he explained to them that as a part of their role in the kingdom, just like the Father had given Jesus a role to reign, Jesus was giving his 12 apostles a role in the kingdom. They would rule the 12 tribes of Israel, each of them over one of the tribes of Israel in the kingdom. This prophecy is given to us, or this prediction by Jesus is given to us in the book of Luke. And so, I think this is probably what the apostles have in mind as they think about this. Oh wait, the twelve of us are going to rule. It's probably what they have in mind, even in Acts chapter 1 when they ask Jesus, Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is now the time for us to rule with you over Israel? And of course, Jesus says, not yet, that's still coming. The second task of the apostle to do in the in-between is to witness. Jesus had given these 12 apostles a specific task to carry the words of Christ. They had been with him day in and day out. They would heard His instruction. They had seen Him alive. And sure, there were other followers, and there would later be others who would even be called apostles. But these twelve specifically had been with Him through all of that, and Jesus had given them authority to teach and to preach the words of Christ. So that was their role now, until the day that Christ returned and set up the kingdom, at which time they would rule with Christ over the tribes Of Israel. And so they need to fill this office and they submit it to the Lord Lord, this is your plan. Who would you have us select? Now, interestingly, they cast lots. Lots were something used commonly in the Old Testament and even through Jesus' time and not only among Jews. It was common in Judaism, but it was, also became even a secular thing to do. You may remember, for instance, uh, beneath the cross of Jesus where the guards cast lots over Jesus' clothing. It was a way of, uh, in a secular viewpoint, to just use something random to make a decision kind of like our playing rock, paper, scissors, or, or rolling dice, or whatever, you know, so this is random choice. Well, in Judaism, it goes back all the way to the umim and the thumim, which they would use to kind of determine God's will, and a, a choice between two things. Proverbs 16.33 speaks to this idea. It says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It recognized the sovereignty of God, and it was a way of God to... Make a choice for the people. This is something God did at times through the Old Testament. And so, this is, you know, again, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. So, the best of their thinking is they look back at the Old Testament, this is the way that they can seek God's direction in making this choice. Now, just one interesting aside about casting lots it's often been an attraction to me to think, boy, if if I could use that for God to make decisions for me all the time, that'd be pretty great, right? Do I wear the red shirt or the blue shirt, you know, and roll the dice? Ah, red shirt. Thank you, Lord. You know, it, well, it doesn't quite work that way. In fact, this is the last time lots are cast in the Bible. It doesn't happen again. Interestingly enough, this is the last event in Scripture before the Spirit comes. And I think those two things are connected Because God has given us a means of following His will, and it is no longer casting lots. It's reading His Word and yielding to His Spirit. Trusting that as we understand Scripture and as we yield to the work of God's Spirit in us, God will guide us. He's promised, right, to give us wisdom. So we don't cast the lots anymore. We have God's Spirit dwelling in us since we've trusted in Christ. Well, enough about casting lots. They do so here, and God makes it clear, Matthias is the one to be chosen. The, the rocks or whatever they were fall out of the container, and likely Matthias's name hit the ground first. And so they say, okay, it's going to be Matthias, and the passage ends with them adding him to the 11, meaning now there's 12 again. What we learn here is their complete submission to God's leading. They've sought the Word, and so based on Scripture, they've kind of come up with a plan that is meant to be obedient to Scripture, and then they take that plan and they submit it to a sovereign God and say, here's what we've tried to do, Father, but you show us what you want. We submit to your leading. This is so crucial in the life of the church that we keep submitting ourselves to the Lord. Father, you lead us. You guide us. We've prayed, we've studied the scriptures, we think this looks right and is obedient to you. Now you guide us and help us and correct us where we're wrong and lead us in a way that is pleasing to you. We submit ourselves to his leading, to follow him and his word. We submit and yield to the sovereign rule of God. So many times we just get going with our good things without even consulting God's Word or submitting to Him through prayer. We tend to view ourselves as just generally submitted, right? Like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to disobey God. Everything I'm doing, I'm trying to do for God's glory, right? But what we forget in that is that our propensity, our, you know, we, we have like this magnetic pull Away from what is right. That's the flesh in us. And so we think we're on track, and yet all the time we're just kind of drifting over here to just kind of doing our own thing. That's what's so crucial about continually coming back to the Lord and submitting to Him. One of the tricky things about that sinful drift in our hearts is that along with it comes blindness. And so, of course, I'm going to think to myself, yeah, I'm living for God's glory. I, I, everything I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm busy and I, all, I'm doing all these really good things, and yeah, of course it's all for God. I've, you know, it's submitted to His will. That's why I do it. But is it really? Or have I just sort of drifted and become blind and thinking that I've got all these good things going? But are they really what God wants me to do? Am I continually coming before Him with open hands, saying, "Lord"? My, my time and my, my body and my life and my thoughts and my desires, they're all yours. What would you have? I'm sure I've made these plans, but I'll, I'll get rid of them. I'll, they're gone, Lord, if you want me to do something else. Whatever you have, just constantly yielding and submitting to Him. Life is not about just doing what other Christians do. It's not about following popular church methods. It's about praying, studying the Word, and yielding in obedience to God. That's it. That's how we depend completely on a sovereign God as we live the Christian life. That is success. We have to reckon with that, that it's not about getting to the end of day and and, and how many things I can check off. But was I yielded to Him and obeying His Word seeking to please Him in every little thought and decision. Maybe all the Lord had for that day was just to work in my heart, to refine me a little bit in the image of Christ, and I come to the end of the day, and I can't really say I accomplished anything, but I know Christ did something in me. Is that success? Yeah, if that's what God wanted to do. So we've got to begin to retrain our minds the way we view productivity and success in life. It's about being submitted to Christ. There are so many fads that come and go as Christians. All, so often, really good things. Events that come up, whether it's food drives or homeless ministries or foster care or evangelistic concerts or you name it. These are all fine things. And we begin to think, as long as I'm doing some of these things, I'm pleasing God It's really all about just being submitted to Him. Is this what the Lord wants me to do? What what has He told me? Am I doing the things He's told me to do? Am I coming back to His words? Am I aligning myself with His will through prayer and then submitting to His leading in life? Success in our mission is complete dependence on a sovereign God. Maybe today, that successful life of complete dependence upon God begins by completely depending on Him for your salvation. One of the things ingrained in our culture is that if you want anything good in life, you've got to work for it. And this thinking seeps into our view of the gospel, our view of eternity and how we can be saved from our sin? Well, if you want to go to heaven, you got to work for it. So many think this way, and the gospel is actually not that at all. The apostle Paul says to us in Ephesians two eight through ten that it's by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man can boast. God did it for His glory so that I, when I stand before His throne, I have nothing to claim before Him. Well, I'm thankful I'm here, Father. I did quite a few good things during my time on earth, so I think you'll be glad to have me in heaven with you. No. It's all of Christ and what He did for me. This is what salvation is based on. So friend, Your your good works could never earn enough to be perfect righteousness in God's eternal kingdom. And just like the apostles were preparing to preach, the kingdom is coming. Are you saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Have your sins been washed away by His blood? And have you received the righteousness of God which is bestowed upon you only by faith in the one who died for you and rose again? That's salvation. But think about it. So many of us have trusted in Christ as Savior and we've, we've been born again and we have entrance into God's family and His eternal kingdom and we're, we're excited about those things, but it's like we take the reins back and say, okay, well, you save me, I've got it from here. As if the rest of the Christian life is on me. But the Christian life is lived the same way the gospel is preached. By grace, through faith and not of yourselves. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 makes it pretty clear. For we, those who have trusted in Christ, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. So who makes us new? He makes us new. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, but... there's something about these good works. God has prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. He, he's made it pretty simple for us. <laughs> Just walk. I've laid it all out before you. Align yourself with me. Talk to me in prayer. Study the Word. Submit yourself to me. And each day, the Father makes it clear. I have, I have a few good things for you to do laid out. I'll give you the strength to do it. I'll give you the, the help to do it. I'll make it clear clear. It's going to be different than your plans, so be ready for that. (laughs) And walk and live. So not only is our salvation by grace through faith, the Christian life is by grace through faith. And so success is then complete dependence upon God. To pray and align ourselves with Him. To seek His Word and follow His instructions. And then the just submit to his leading. Okay, Lord, I'll take that next step. I'll walk in the good works you've laid out for me, for your glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for being so, so kind to us. Not only giving us everything we need for salvation, but everything we need for life and godliness that by coming to you in prayer and leaning on the instruction of your word, we have all that we need. And so we say to you, we submit, we yield. Oh, Father, we are privileged to be used by you in the building of Christ's church. We so want to be a part of what you're doing. Guard us from distraction. Oh, teach us humility that we would... Never think our ideas are just so great and just go off making our own plans and designs. Oh, may we humbly come to your word and follow your instructions and yield to you in prayer and follow your leading. Help us as a church. Help us as individuals to live this way. That your spirit may be seen in us to cause us to look like Christ. That the world may know that Jesus is the Savior you sent. May all come to repentance and faith in Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.